Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, June 10th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and once again, thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to embark on a presentation of the prophecy of Zechariah. I won't say how long it'll, it'll take or how long I expect it to take. I'll probably be very wrong. Tonight we are going to present two chapters, so maybe I'm going too fast. Two chapters of Zechariah's 14. Tonight's program is subtitled, Visions Near and Far, because that is what Zechariah had written. The writing of the book of Zechariah the prophet can be dated rather accurately to begin about 520 B.C. I should say that is what Zechariah had seen. During the reign of the Persian king known as Darius the Great, Zechariah was one of three post-captivity prophets whose writing we have in our Bibles. The others are Haggai and Malachi. According to Haggai himself, the written records of his prophecy were initiated just over two months before those of Zechariah, at the very beginning of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. While the book of Malachi is not dated, from internal evidence it was clearly written sometime after both Haggai and Zechariah, as the Levitical priesthood, which was reestablished in the time of the first two Second Temple prophets, was being corrupted already in the time of Malachi. Therefore, Malachi may have written as late as the events described in Genesis chapters 9 and 10, and possibly even later. As we more fully demonstrate in an article at Christogenia entitled, Notes Concerning Daniel's Seventy Weeks Prophecy, the mission of Nehemiah preceded that of Ezra by many decades. The first captives unrecorded by scripture, may have returned to Jerusalem sometime after 539 B.C., when Cyrus had conquered Babylon. Evidently, sometime during this period, some rebuilding in Jerusalem may have begun, but was never completed. Cambyses, the son and successor of Cyrus, who ruled from 529 to 522 B.C. was a difficult man. Upon complaints from the Samaritans and others, he had ordered any building activity at Jerusalem to cease. This was recorded by Flavius Josephus. After Cambyses had died from a wound in battle, Darius became king of Persia. There was actually an interloper intervening for about nine months. Darius became king of Persia in 521 or 522 BC, and by 520 the rebuilding in Jerusalem had commenced. The opening verses of Haggai the prophet records that the temple was rebuilt at this very time. When Nehemiah first returned to Jerusalem, as it is related in chapter 2 of his writing. The walls were broken down, and at least some of the entrances into the city were impassable because of the debris which resulted when the city was destroyed by the Babylonians. 
In our notes on the period, our aforementioned notes, it has been established that where the English versions of Nehemiah have Artaxerxes, the reference is a mere title which Nehemiah used for that same King Darius, in spite of the fact that the Greeks commonly use their form of that title in reference to the Artaxerxes who ruled Persia beginning from 465 BC, which was during the time of Ezra. Nehemiah's ministry, Nehemiah's mission, his appointment in Judea begins about 502 BC. Zerubbabel was appointed governor of those returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in 520 BC. Nehemiah was appointed the governor of Jerusalem by Darius from about 502 until about 489 BC. Ezra received his own commission in 458 BC. However, Ezra was with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel in Jerusalem as a young man. In the opening chapters of the book of Nehemiah, he describes the building of the gates and walls of Jerusalem, which would ostensibly also clear the debris. He had received building materials for the walls and gates of the city, as it is described in chapter 2 of his prophecy. In his time, as the walls and gates were being built, Eliashib is the high priest. Nehemiah does not describe the rebuilding of the temple, which had evidently already been built as Haggai describes, and as one may see where it is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 6. So the temple was already built. Then in chapter 7, Nehemiah lists those who had first returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, who was appointed governor before him. In that place, Nehemiah is reflecting on things that had happened much earlier, as he says in verse 43 of that chapter. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first, and found written therein. And there, at the top of the list, he mentions himself after Zerubbabel and another man, who in the King James Version is called Jeshua, J-E-S-H-U-A. This Jeshua was also a high priest, and must be the same high priest called Joshua, who is mentioned here in the prophecy of Zechariah. Eliashib, the priest who later rebuilt the walls in the time when Nehemiah was governor, was the grandson of this Jeshua, or this Joshua, as Zechariah has it. In the genealogy of the priests, in Nehemiah chapter 12, we read in verse 10, And Jeshua begot Joachim, and Joachim also begot Eliashib. As a digression, an examination of the line of the high priest here also proves that our chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah is correct, in spite of the fact that it is contrary to all of the established biblical so-called scholarship. 
That's right. You ask any, you consult any so-called Bible scholar, any commentary, any Bible dictionary. They will tell you that Nehemiah followed Ezra by a number of years. That's a lie. Ezra followed Nehemiah by a number of years. 44 or 45 years. I may have missed something, but I know of no one else who has ever asserted that the commission of Ezra follows that of Nehemiah by 44 or 45 years, but it is nevertheless true. It also helps to prove that most so-called Christian scholars of the last few centuries merely take for granted the errors of the Jews and accept them as true. Just to give my listeners an idea of how long I have considered this, I actually worked this chronology worked this chronology out in late 2002 after reading one Esdras in the Septuagint, and Clifton first published it in May of 2009. I don't know if either of us had mentioned it earlier. So the Jeshua who returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel in the days of the Persian king Darius, an event which is also recorded in retrospect in the opening chapters of the book of Ezra, is the same high priest Joshua of this prophecy of Zechariah. The rebuilding of the temple commenced in 520 B.C., as we can tell from Ezra chapter 6, as well as from Haggai and we can determine that it was completed in or around 516 B.C., as Ezra 615 states that it was completed in the sixth year of Darius. Nehemiah's own records are less complete, but his primary concern is not with the temple. It's already built. It's with the gates and walls of the city. There is an illusion in Nehemiah chapter 2, in a description of a request for building materials, to beams for the gates of the palace which appertained to the house, which shows that the house of God must have been built already. And this is also evident where the temple is first mentioned explicitly in Nehemiah chapter 6, where it is already built. More often in Nehemiah, the temple is referred to as the house of God rather than as a temple. So the temple must have been built by Zerubbabel in the days of Joshua the high priest from 520 down through 516 BC. And then a few years later, the walls and the gates of the city were rebuilt by Nehemiah in the in the days of Eliashib, the high priest, who is the grandson of that Joshua from the time of Zerubbabel. The building of the walls and gates apparently being complete, and the temple already being built, the city itself was not built up, and Nehemiah was recalled to Persia after the Persian defeat at the Battle of Marathon, which occurred in 490 B.C. Sometime after the ensuing Persian war against the Greeks was lost, building projects in the empire resumed, and in 458 BC, Ezra received his commission to return and build the city. When Ezra returned to Jerusalem, the temple, the gates, and the walls were already built. At this time, it is apparent that 
Johanan was the high priest, who is mentioned both by Ezra and Nehemiah as being the son of Eliashib, something which is only vaguely evident in Ezra chapter 10 verse 6, and also in Nehemiah 12.23, where it says that the sons of Levi were recorded in the Chronicles, even until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. So the Johanan, who was evidently the high priest in the time of Ezra, succeeded his father before the close of the time of Nehemiah, around 489 B.C. Thirty years later, he's still the high priest. Ezra's commission is described in Ezra chapter 7. The first six chapters of Ezra, or the first seven chapters in the better and more complete version found in the apocryphal book known as 1 Esdras, are an account of things which happened before Ezra received his commission, in the days of Zerubbabel and then Nehemiah, both of whom had preceded him as governor of Judea. So in both chapters 5 and 6 of Ezra, we see him mention Zechariah, the son of Edo. This is, of course, the same prophet Zechariah, who describes himself here as Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo the prophet. Whatever happened to his father, we do not know. However, Edo and Zechariah, his grandson, are both mentioned among the returnees to Jerusalem in the company of Zerubbabel at Nehemiah 12, verse 16. The fact that Berechiah did not accompany his father and his son to Jerusalem is probably why, in his book, Zechariah described himself further as the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo the prophet, because his readers in Jerusalem would recognize the name of his grandfather, but perhaps not that of his father, because his father didn't accompany him to Jerusalem. The prophet Zechariah is mentioned in the New Testament, but we believe that the reference is spurious and that Christ was actually referring to another man of the same name. In Luke chapter 11, we see Yahshua Christ mention a Zacharias which perished between the temple and the altar. But in the same account as it is related in Matthew chapter 23, the King James Version has it as Zacharias the son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. This infers that this prophet Zechariah was killed at the temple in Jerusalem. The Codex Sinaiticus, however, does not contain the words for son of Barachias. Neither do most copies of the Gospel of Luke, outside of the Codex Beze, and some late manuscripts and manuscripts in other languages, which do contain the words. We have long rejected the references to Berechiah in those manuscripts as an interpolation. Rather, we believe that the reference Christ had made to Zacharias was a reference 
to the father of John the Baptist. This connection was also made in antiquity as early as the 3rd century Christian writer Origen and the early apocryphal infancy gospel, which was attributed to James. We do not, which is actually from the 2nd century AD, we do not accept those writings as canonical or even inspired, but that does not mean that everything in them is wrong. We're only using them to show that others in antiquity also believed that the reference to the slaying of Zacharias in Matthew 23 and Luke chapter 11 was a reference to the father of John the Baptist, and that is what we believe. With this foundation, we shall begin to discuss certain aspects of Zechariah's prophecy. On the surface, the subject of Zechariah's prophecy appears to be the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Judea, which was a process which would take a total of 80 or so years. From the first commission of Zerubbabel by Cyrus and Darius down to the final commission of Ezra by the historical Artaxerxes, as opposed to the use of Artaxerxes as a title in reference to others, which is evident in the book of Nehemiah. Zechariah's prophecy is presented at the time of the building of the second temple in the days of Zerubbabel. In the beginning of the reign of Darius, Zechariah chapter 7 mentions the fourth year of Darius, and it is therefore written two years before the temple was completed, as Ezra informs us, happened in the sixth year of Darius. That, I believe, is the last part of Zechariah's prophecy where we can determine the date it was written, because I don't think he mentions a date again in his last seven chapters, or at least I haven't seen one yet. Maybe we'll see one as we progress through this book of prophecy. The name Jeshua, as it appears in Nehemiah, Strong's Hebrew number 3442, is actually, and it's spelled with four letters, it's Yad Shin Vav and Ayin, is actually a contracted form of the name Joshua, Strong's number 3091, which is spelled Yad Heth Shin Ayin, which appears in Zechariah. So we have Jeshua in Nehemiah and Joshua in Zechariah, but they are both referring to the high priest at the time of Zerubbabel. According to Strong's Concordance, Jeshua is interpreted as he will save, and the later Joshua as Yahweh saved. Strong nevertheless admitted that the first version, Jeshua, stands for the later, connecting the words in his definition at Joshua, whereat 3442 he wrote in parentheses, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, he wrote 43091. 
So Joshua the high priest, who is mentioned here in Zechariah, is representative of the historical Jeshua. Strong made the connection between the two names. The high priest at this very time. But he is also representative of something more than Jeshua the high priest, since in Hebrew his name is filled out, first to be the same as that of Joshua the son of Nun, who succeeded Moses, and also as that future Joshua who is Joshua Christ. As a digression, some commentators maintain in contention that the, na- the given name of Christ should also, should also be interpreted as Jeshua and not as Joshua. However, the writings of the New Testament and the Greek of the Old Testament, as well as certain prophecies, can prove otherwise. For instance, in both Acts chapter 7 verse 35 and in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, is referred to, he is definitely in context the individual being referred to, and he is referred to with the same Greek form of the name spelled as Jesus in the King James Version of the New Testament. Jesus. Furthermore, where the Hebrew form of Joshua appears in the Septuagint, the Greek is represented by the same Greek name, Jesus, which gives us Yahshua, or Jesus, in the New Testament. The same exact spelling. So the ancient Hebrew translators of the Septuagint, as well as the translators of the New Testament in the King James Version, equated the Hebrew form of the name for Joshua to the Greek form of the name for Jesus, whom we, for the most part, prefer to call Yahshua. But the same is true of Jeshua, which, in the Septuagint Greek, if you want to go check the Greek to the book of Nehemiah, also appears as Jesus or Jesus. In other words, the Hebrew translators who created the Greek manuscripts of the Septuagint, they read Yahshua and they wrote Jesus. And when they read Yeshua, they wrote Jesus. So James Strong was correct to connect the two names, Jeshua and Joshua, since in reality, one is only a further contraction of the other. Jeshua is Joshua. Joshua is Yahshua. Jesus is Yahshua. They're all the same, whether you like it or not. I would uphold that the Hebrew translators into the Greek Septuagint knew a little more about these names than we can imagine to know today. We believe that the understanding of these names as they appear in the prophetic Zechariah and the historical Nehemiah is quite important. This is because, as we are persuaded, it helps to enlarge the understanding that while the immediate subject in Zechariah appears to be Jerusalem in Judea in the days of the high priest Jeshua, that is not at all the ultimate purpose of the prophecy. 
Such is the dual nature of many of the biblical prophecies, that they are given in a manner which has both an immediate application and an ultimate, ultimate transcendental meaning which shall also be fulfilled. The ultimate purpose of these early chapters of the prophecy of Zechariah is to describe the reconciliation of the people of Israel in their dispersions as well as the condition of their true high priest, Yahshua Christ, before their sins are removed in the propitiation which that priest makes on their behalf. Joshua which is descriptive of Jeshua, who is the high priest of Zechariah's time, is only a type for Yahshua Christ. Jerusalem, the actual city, is only a type for the true Jerusalem, the city of God come down from heaven, which is a metaphor for the actual people of God. Finally, the rebuilt temple is a type for the restored body of Christ found in those of his people who are willing to hearken in obedience to him. We shall establish these things as we proceed. Now we shall present Zechariah chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse. Excuse me. Sounding like a pig while I... Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of Yahweh unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edor the prophet, saying, and we will stop there. As we may have noticed with the chronology given in our introduction to the prophet, Zechariah and Edo had returned to Jerusalem in the days of Zerubbabel, sometime this year where it is now about 520 B.C., and the chronologies can always be off by a year. If you read on Theodore Siculus and account his chronologies, his translators have noted that they are off by as much as three years by the chronologies of, the, of some of the other historians when he is talking about ancient history. That's the way it is. Nobody had perfect calendars back then, and there were differences from culture to culture in the way that years were reckoned or counted. Yahweh, verse 2, Yahweh has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. About 18 years later, that's what it is, in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see a similar expression described in the context of a confession and a promise, where it says, in verse 7, We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, that the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. That's found in Deuteronomy, and that's what happened. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though they were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet I will gather them from thence, and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. 
Yet neither was this fulfilled literally in the second temple period, because the ultimate gathering of the cast-out children of Israel is in Yahshua Christ, and not in the second temple. And Zechariah continues, Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways, and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? In John chapter 8, in verse 52, the opponents of Christ attempted to take advantage of the fatalistic warnings of Scripture in an attempt to discredit Christ, where we read, Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know, I'm reading from the King James Version, Now we know that thou hast a devil, Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead, whom makest thou thyself, or what do you make of yourself? The understanding of this exchange is enriched once it is realized that many of the opponents of Christ were Sadducees. The high priests and the officers of the temple at this time were primarily of the Sadducees, who denied the continuation of the spirit, the conscience of man after his death. Christ replied by insisting otherwise, and in verse 56 he said in part, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Indeed, the prophet shall live forever. As Christ also said to his opponents in Luke chapter 13, from verse 28, that there shall be weeping of gnashing of teeth, when you shall see Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves are thrust out. Reconciling the Gospel of Christ with both the Old Testament promises and words of Zechariah here, we can only come to one conclusion, that if, if the fathers had been obedient, they may not have seen that physical death, regardless of the ultimate promise of eternal life, and the prophets would not have died along with them. Of course they had this offer, but Yahweh God knew long in advance that they would fail, because Christ was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, meaning that his incarnation and sacrifice for his people, which would in history become necessary, was known from the beginning. God already had it all planned out. The failure of those early Israelites prevented them from entering into the rest or the Sabbath of God. Paul informs us in Hebrews that Joshua, the son of Nun, could not give that rest to the children of Israel on account of their disobedience. Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 4, For if Jesus, meaning Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day?
referring to promises in the Psalms. Therefore, there remaineth a rest to the people of God. So that rest promised to the people of God shall not come until the return of another Joshua, Joshua Christ. But if the fathers had been obedient, ostensibly they would have obtained that rest, and they would not have died, which is a model that is here offered as an example in the words of Zechariah. While God foresaw their failure, they nevertheless had the opportunity for success extended to them. They just couldn't help but fail, because that was God's plan all along. And Zechariah continues, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as Yahweh of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. And here the prophet portrays a confession on the part of the people of Judah that their fate in Babylonian captivity was a just punishment for the magnitude of their sins. The prophet Daniel made a similar plea just before he received his vision of the seventy weeks kingdom. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, the holy mountain, because for our sins, and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. In spite of their education in the law, the people only acknowledge their sins once they have suffered from the results. And that is still an attitude that people have today. The next vision of Zechariah does not come for at least three months later. In verse 7, Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sabbat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of Yahweh unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him there were red horses, speckled and white. The word for bottom in the King James Version in verse 8, refers to a valley, a hollow, or a ravine. The Septuagint version of the verse, translated from the Greek rather appropriately by Sir Francis Brenton, reads, I saw by night, and behold, a man mounted on a red horse, and he stood between the shady mountains, and behind him were red horses and gray, and piebald, and white. Likewise, where the phrase, among the myrtle trees, appears in verses 10 and 11, the Septuagint has between the mountains. Verse 8, as well as most of verses 10 and 11, are missing from the fragments of the copies of Zechariah, which have survived in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so they cannot truly 
help us as a referee to the differences. The colors of the horses may be significant. In the Revelation in chapter 6, it is apparent that the different colors of four horses represented the various stages of the Roman Empire, from its period of growth with the white horse, to civil war with the red horse, and on to the decadence and death with the black and the pale, or green horses. Zechariah continues in verse 9, Then I said, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, or between the mountains, answered and said, These are they whom Yahweh has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. The question is in reference to the horses in verse 8. What are these? Here the Septuagint adds gray horses to the mix, and piebald is another word for speckled. We may assume that the red horse represents wrath in the judgment of God, where the red may represent either blood or anger, and the speckled horse represents a mix of fortunes for Jerusalem, which evidently in the history subsequent to this, did become quite speckled. While the white horse represents the mercy or the salvation of God. This is the interpretation which seems to be evident in the explanation to come. However, the wrath is reserved for the nations of the heathen which surround Jerusalem, and the mercy is for Jerusalem itself. In any event, the horses seem not to be confined to the city, but rather they walk to and fro through the earth. And Zechariah continues in verse 11. And they answered the angel of Yahweh that stood among the myrtle trees, or in the Septuagint, between the mountains, and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sits still and is at rest. Cyrus, the great Persian king, had died trying to subject the Scythians in 529 BC. His son Cambyses died of wounds in what was apparently a failed venture against the Ethiopians. Darius seems to have had a relatively peaceful rule which focused on the organization of government and construction projects. However, he too marched against Egypt in order to assure its control, and had made campaigns in the east as far as the Indus River Valley. Crossing the Bosphorus in the west around 515 BC, he attacked the Scythians of Europe as well as the Thracians. According to Herodotus, he did all of this in preparation for an invasion of Greece, which he himself did not live to execute. However, except for two revolts of the Babylonians, which were put down within the first year of Darius's rule, the Persian Empire itself did enjoy a relatively long period of peace at this time, except for their external wars. So by all the land, the prophecy must refer to all of the land of the Persian Empire, of which Judea was a portion.
And Zechariah continues in verse 12. Then the angel of Yahweh answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? And of course this prophecy in itself also heralds the fulfillment of another prophecy given by the prophet Jeremiah many decades before, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 29. For thus saith Yahweh, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. Later on, in Zechariah chapter 7, the prophet refers to even those seventy years in a further chastisement of these people. And in verse 13, Zechariah says, And Yahweh answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. And here, Zechariah portrays the angel as a go-between, repeating to him what Yahweh himself had already said to the angel. And he continues, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, with a great jealousy. I am very sore displeased with the heathens, or the nations, that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. The heathen, the nations which were at ease, are Evidently, all of the surrounding nations, the nations surrounding Judea, which over the centuries were the enemies of ancient Israel, which Yahweh had made many utterances against in the earlier prophets, while some of the larger nations whom he had spoken against were already destroyed, such as Assyria, or on their way to decline, such as Egypt, Many were still thriving, where it says, they helped forward the affliction. Perhaps it would be more accurate to write, they helped in regards to the injury or the evil things which they had done in the past to Judah. Accepting the reading of this passage in the Septuagint version, the angel and the horses which follow him are stationed between two great mountains. This is consistent with the King James Version, where at the beginning it speaks of a bottom, a valley or a ravine in verse 8. Mountains often represent great nations in Scripture. As Daniel had also prophesied in Daniel chapter 8, of a war between the Persians and the Greeks, and that war was imminent, Therefore, they must be the two great mountains, and Zechariah seems to be telling us that caught between these two great mountains, all of these other nations which had done evil against Judah would be judged. While detailed histories are often wanting, after the wars with Persia and the Hellenistic period, the map of the ancient world was indeed quite different from the time of Darius. Edom no longer existed, but the Edomites had moved, into, had moved into Judea in the Persian period. 
Moab still existed in the Persian period, it was gone by the Hellenistic Greek period. When you read the histories of Josephus, the Moabites are accounted as being among the Arabs. They're all mixed in with the Arabs, and they lost their inheritance as a nation. The same thing with the Ammonites and many of the other. The Philistines, and we'll read Zechariah's own prophecy against the Philistines, that a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. I believe that's in Zechariah chapter 4. So evidently the Philistines were not bastards, but when you look at later history, they certainly were punished in that manner, because the name of the Philistines is gone, and bastards are certainly living in Ashdod and in all of the other Philistine cities. So, this that these horses, this red horse, this white horse, this speckled horse between the two mountains, the two mountains are Greece and Persia, the great nations, they're about to have a war, and that is how Yahweh will execute his judgment against these surrounding nations. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith Yahweh of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. In the short run, in the literal sense, it is evident that the house referred to here is the second temple. But Yahweh had already said in Jeremiah chapter 19, that even so will I break this people and this city, as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. This could not have been a prophecy of what happened in the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Rather, Daniel, writing after 586 B.C., after prophesying of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, had said concerning that same city that after the cutting off of the Messiah, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this was the desolation which Christ had promised would come upon that same Jerusalem during his ministry. Again, in the Messianic prophecy in the words of that same prophet in Jeremiah chapter 33, we read, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, Yahweh our Righteousness. So, if Jerusalem was to be destroyed, never to be made whole again, which it was in 70 AD, and which was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 19, and if Jerusalem was to be saved and dwell safely, it is evident that Jerusalem stands for something greater in the words of the prophets, than the mere city in Palestine. Because Jeremiah chapter 33 cannot be referring to Jerusalem in Palestine. The Jerusalem of today is not Jerusalem, just because it goes by that name. 
because it is built and inhabited by God's enemies and not God's people, in fulfillment of another prophecy in Malachi. Rather, Jerusalem in the prophets becomes an allegory for the seats of government of the people of God wherever they happen to be. That is how New Jerusalem is portrayed as descending from heaven in the closing chapters of the Revelation. The second temple, this temple of which Jeremiah speaks, had one purpose only, as it was described by Daniel the prophet. Daniel is still speaking of the city and of the Messiah, I'm sorry, the second temple of which Zechariah, Zechariah speaks, had one purpose, and that purpose was described by Daniel the prophet. Daniel is still speaking of the city and of the Messiah in chapter 9. And he wrote, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, and upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And then, a little further on, speaking of that Messiah, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. So, the seventy weeks kingdom existed for that one reason only, mentioned in Daniel to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to anoint the most holy, and for the confirmation of the new covenant. Those things all being related. Until the consummation, Jerusalem shall be desolate. So it will remain desolate until after the return of that same Messiah. With the advent of the Messiah, the temple, the stone temple, is no longer a necessity. As Paul had said in Acts chapter 17, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. And there is a new Jerusalem which descends from heaven. So where Yahweh said of Jerusalem here in Zechariah, my house shall be built in it. The short term reference may refer to the second temple the near reference, and work had already begun. But while he is apparently speaking of this second temple, the far reference, the transcendental reference, is a transcendental prophecy where he is actually speaking of the advent of the Messiah, which is Yahweh God manifest in the flesh as a man. My house will be built in it. This is evident in John chapter 2. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, Speaking of the third temple, Herod's temple, because the second temple's gone. Then the Jews said, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and thou wilt rear it up in three days? And John said, But he spoke of the temple of his body.
The physical person of Christ is the real house or temple which was built in the 70 weeks kingdom. And Zechariah's prophecy applies to the one and to the other. It applies to them both, the near vision and the transcendental, the far vision. And Zechariah continues in verse 17, Cry yet, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and Yahweh shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. And just as Jerusalem can be an allegory for the seats of government of the people of God, wherever they happen to be, likewise Zion is an allegory for the people of God, wherever they also happen to be. This is evident in many places in Scripture, such as Psalm 146, where it says, Yahweh shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise ye Yahweh. Do you really think the writer of Psalms was speaking to a hill in Jerusalem? One other place where the analogy is clear is in Isaiah chapter 52, addressed to the people of the isles from afar, as we read in Isaiah chapter 42. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall come no more into thee the the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion, the people in captivity. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigns. Do you think that's said to a mountain, to a hill in Jerusalem, or to the people of Israel, collectively called Zion? Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Well, the mountain never moved. These things were to be done in Christ, and not during the second temple period. In Zechariah chapter 9, we have a more explicit prophecy, which again elucidates the dual purpose of Zechariah's words here in these early chapters, where he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh to thee! He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, Christ riding into the old city, Jerusalem, on a lowly ass, was a symbolic type for the humble manner in which the gospel was initially brought to the scattered tribes of Israel. Zechariah sees another vision in verse 18. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, what be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, 
and Jerusalem. So we see that Jerusalem is scattered, right? Horns in a prophetic scripture most often represent kings or kingdoms. The picture of world empires described by Daniel begins with the book of Nezar in Daniel's own time. So Daniel only prophesied four beast kingdoms, two of which had not yet come in Zechariah's time. And here Zechariah is speaking in the past tense. However, if we look at the wider panorama of history, as Revelation chapter 17 verses 10 and 11 also does, perhaps we can imagine that the four horns of the four beast empires that existed up until Zechariah's time. The Revelation, Christ in the Revelation said when he was giving the vision to John in 98, in 90 AD, that there were already many more kings than Daniel's vision. And there were eight altogether. And he says that four have fallen, and one is, and, and the other is not yet come. And then he mentions an eight. I'm sorry, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And then he mentions an eighth. I'm paraphrasing. This is not in my notes, but I referred to it. Once we understand that, perhaps we can imagine that the four horns of Zechariah are four beast empires that existed, four of the eight beast empires of Revelation chapter 17, that existed up until Zechariah's time. And those four beast empires are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. And then the other four are Rome. That's the one that is. I'm sorry, the Greek Empire and then Rome. That's the one that is in the time of the Revelation. So five are fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia, and the Greek Empire. Five are fallen and one is. And the other, the seventh, has not yet come. And then there's an eighth which is mentioned, which is of the seven. So there's eight beast empires in the Revelation. There's only four in Daniel, because Daniel is not talking about the past. He's only talking about the future and about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So the scope of Daniel is limited. So here Zechariah talks about four horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. And they must be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. From the time of the Exodus, each of those four empires did indeed have a hand in scattering Israel and Judah and the people of Jerusalem. It would be apparent of Egypt once it is understood and as the ancient historians also attest, that many Israelites departed Egypt by sea rather than joining Moses. They didn't all go with Moses. The Exodus doesn't talk about them. Sometimes they're mentioned later on in Scripture, or hints of them are mentioned later on in Scripture. They were never joined again to the main body of Israel, not 
before the time of Christ. Those Israelites have histories as distinct nations, the Trojans and the Romans, for a great example, the Danan Greeks, for another example. They have histories as distinct nations, and in certain places that history is evident in Paul's epistles. The scattering of Israel by Assyria and Babylon is clearly apparent in Scripture. While the Persian king, Cyrus and Darius, had good intentions towards Jerusalem, they nevertheless made war against the Scythians in both the east and the west, as we have already mentioned. The Scythians, being the children of Israel and Judah of the Assyrian captivity, were scattered further afield because of the wars made against them by the Persians. So we would identify Zechariah's four horns that scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem with those four kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, which indeed scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. And then in verse 20, And Yahweh showed me four carpenters. Then I said, What come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these, referring to the carpenters, are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the nations, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Carpenters are not kings or kingdoms, but rather they are builders. The work which they build shall ultimately enable the people of Judah to overcome the horns which scattered them, the enemies of God. Israel is not mentioned, which should probably be factored into the interpretation. Therefore, we may imagine that the carpenters are those who did the work of God in establishing the 70 weeks kingdom, ensuring that Judea would remain for the appointed time and purpose, which was to produce the Christ. That would be the short-term interpretation. That would be the near vision. However, perhaps we may conjecture that the transcendental interpretation refers to the four Gospels of Christ, which truly cast out the horns of all the heathen nations. That's our interpretation. Now we shall proceed with Zechariah chapter 2, which begins a new vision. I lifted up mine eyes again, and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. Now, perhaps this vision may also lend us further insight into the nature and meaning of Ezekiel's temple vision, which was also measured by angels, but which was much more elaborate. But Ezekiel's temple never materialized in Palestine, and it never will. Ezekiel's temple seems only to be an assurance that there is a place for all of the tribes of Israel in the plan of God, as Christ also told his apostles. In the house of my father 
There are many abodes in John 14, verse 2. John chapter 14, verse 2. As we shall soon see, neither can this Jerusalem measured here in Zechariah be the Jerusalem in Palestine, and therefore we have further proof of the dual nature of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, the next time Jerusalem is measured in Scripture, it is the new Jerusalem descended from heaven in Revelation chapter 21, and the measurement is an allegory for the people of God. Here we will continue with Zechariah chapter 2, verse 3. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith Yahweh, will be under her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. We see in verse 4 that Zechariah is described as a boy or a youth, so he evidently must have been quite young when he was inspired to this prophecy. The King James Version adds words to the text which did not really appear in the Hebrew or in its Greek translations. But the Hebrew of the passage does inform us that Jerusalem would be inhabited as an open country. The word paraza, Strong's number 6519, means open country and was interpreted by the King James translators with the phrase, as towns without walls. The Septuagint translation omits the word, but it does appear to be present in fragments of the verse found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nevertheless, the meaning is evident in both the King James Version and the Septuagint, where in verse 5 Yahweh says, I will be unto her for a wall meaning that this Jerusalem of the prophecy will be without walls of its own, and God will be its wall. However, in Zechariah's time, Jerusalem's walls were built soon after the temple was built, or at least within two decades. Eventually, all of the significant towns of Second Temple period Judea had walls. Rather, Yahweh is once again speaking of Israel scattered abroad. But the prophecy is a near vision because until the time of Nehemiah, perhaps for 15 or 20 years, Jerusalem had no walls, but they were built by Nehemiah. Yahweh is once again speaking of Israel scattered abroad as the next verse, verse 6, explicitly states, Ho, ho, Come forth, come forth in the King James Version is in italics. The words do not appear in the Hebrew. Ho, ho, and flee from the land of the north, saith Yahweh. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, saith Yahweh. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. The words come forth are clearly added to the text. They do not belong to the original. That's why they're in italics. The immediate interpretation of the prophecy is that it represents an appeal to the Judahites of Babylon to return to Jerusalem and Palestine. 
But as the records indicate, relatively few of them had complied. There were only about 42,000 people who returned, and not many more than that are counted. Aside from the remnant which returned to Jerusalem in Zechariah's time, the children of Israel, the zeon of Zechariah's prophecy, were scattered abroad and remained scattered abroad throughout the entire Second Temple period, and none of them were ever known as Jews. So Paul says in Acts chapter 26, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. If those twelve tribes were scat were gathered in Judea before Christ, then James would not have written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and Paul would not have distinguished them from the Jews, as he indeed visited Jews overseas as well as in Judea. That word Jews should say Judeans. But none of the twelve tribes were Jews, although some of the Judeans were Israelites. To interpret the prophecy, Zion, the people of Israel, must be properly identified in history, and so does the daughter of Babylon. Zechariah has a meaning which far transcends the seventy weeks kingdom. Psalm 137 provides a clue where the daughter of Babylon is also associated with the Edomites who destroyed the original temple of Yahweh. Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards thee as thou hast served us. That's the children of Edom being identified as the daughter of Babylon. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That prophecy in the Psalms has not yet been fulfilled, and it will not be fulfilled until the passing of the prophecy in Revelation chapter 18, where much of the same language appears, and where, after the fall of Mystery Babylon, all of the enemies of God shall be destroyed by his people. That is how Zion shall deliver itself from the daughter of Babylon. And Zechariah continues in verse 8, For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, After the glory has he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. This phrase, after the glory, appears in the same sense in both the Greek and Latin translations of Scripture. The short-term interpretation may be related to the completion of the Second Temple. However, there are greater promises of the glorification of Yahweh God in the prophets. One place where this is evident is in Isaiah chapter 49. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. After the glory, he has sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. Then I said, Isaiah 49.4, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain 
Yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with God. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. This is a messianic prophecy. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see thee and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the glory because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. So there it is evident that God is glorified in Israel, and Israel is glorified in Christ at the time of their restoration. To restore the preserved of Israel. But that restoration cannot come until Zion delivers itself from the daughter of Babylon. So in Acts chapter 1, the apostles had asked Christ, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he answered them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. That glory of God, when Israel is restored, and Yahweh glorifies himself in Israel, that must be the glory which Zechariah speaks of here, where he says, after the glory. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith Yahweh. During the short-lived restoration of Jerusalem, the Judahites did indeed make war against and defeat all of their surrounding enemies, especially in the Hellenistic period. However, there were other prophecies and factors to consider, especially those of Daniel and Malachi, and certain prophecies of Zechariah. Furthermore, the far-reaching objective of prophecy foretold of the permanent restoration of scattered Israel, and not merely the temporary restoration of the 70 weeks kingdom. But the purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom was for the ultimate restoration of scattered Israel. So Zechariah has an evident short-term fulfillment, but the short-term fulfillment was short-lived. The long-term fulfillment is evident in Revelation chapters 18 and 19, which the children of Israel still await. There, the progression is much the same. Caught in the captivity of mystery Babylon, the children of Israel are told to come out of her as it falls. They are then commanded to repay her as she had rewarded them, and in the cup of her wrath, to fill for her double. After the lamentation over mystery Babylon is described, we have Revelation chapter 19, where all the nations are depicted as gathering against the Christ, and they are all destroyed by him and his armies. That long-term fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah is the permanent and lasting fulfillment. The second advent of the Messiah is when, as Yahweh says here, I will come and dwell in the midst of thee. 
which was fulfilled for the short term, the near vision in the mystery of Christ. The far vision will be at the second advent. And many nations shall be joined to Yahweh in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto thee. Now those many nations are the seed of Abraham, the great nation and company of nations promised to the children of Israel all the way back in Genesis. They are the twelve tribes scattered abroad, and the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Christ said in a parable in Matthew chapter 25, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, after the glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will dwell in the midst of thee. But all the goats are forever destroyed. And Yahweh shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before Yahweh. For he is raised up out of his holy habitation. This last passage of Zechariah chapter 2 also has a meaning pertaining to Yahshua Christ. And then, in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet states, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now these passages can also be interpreted to represent the struggles which the people of Judah in Zerubbabel's time had with the Samaritans and the Edomites in the environs of ancient Jerusalem. But they are more properly interpreted as a prophetic description of the overall history of the of ancient Jerusalem and a struggle which would not come to a head until the time of Jesus or Yahshua Christ when he had persistently rebuked his enemies in the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the purpose of the 70 weeks nation. That is where we will continue in our next segment of the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus and Satan. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of true Israel. And good night.